You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. As always, we are your hosts, Bill Winter. Yep. <laughs> Bill, man, a few words. <laughs> what do you think of that, Bill? Good. What do you think of that one? Not good. <laughs> yeah, it comes I with being a knuckle dragger. I was going to say, you make Jocko sound verbose. <laughs> good. Good. But we're going to dive back into this whole conversation about uh, Stoicism, the Stoic Warriors Triad by uh, James B. Stockdale, Stockdale and Stoicism 1. And we'll again post a link in the show notes for you so that you can jump to the essay. We're going to jump ahead a little bit today to get into Stockdale's story and his biography because he also likes to hear at this point flesh out a little bit more both the temptation to what do you want to say abstract and over over intellectualize stoicism but also then the importance to him of stoicism in his own life experience and grounding it in an anecdotal story well it goes to show that he knows epictetus very well Mm -hmm. Uh, epictetus says the same thing Uh, to paraphrase unless you're actually living this it's not a philosopher. Not a philosopher. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and Marcus quotes that in Meditations even. That mm-hmm. this is meant to be lived, not to be meant to be published or debated. Yep. So let's dive in. Stockdale says, The time interval between my finishing graduate school and becoming a prisoner was almost exactly three years. September 1962 to September 1965. That was a very eventful period in my life. I started a war, led the first ever American bombing raid on North Vietnam led good men in about 150 aerial combat missions in flak, And throughout three seven-month cruises to Vietnam, I had not only the Encoridian, but the discourses on my bedside table on each of the three aircraft carriers I flew from. And I read them. On the 9th of September, 1965, I flew right into a flak trap at treetop level, 500 knots in a little A4 airplane. Cockpit walls not even three feet apart, which I couldn't steer after it was on fire. (laughs) Control control system shot out. After ejection, I had about 30 seconds to make my last statement in freedom before I landed in the main street of that little village right ahead. And so help me, I whispered to myself, five years down there at least, I'm leaving the world of technology and entering the world of Epictetus. I want to stop off the chronology escalator for just a minute and explain what memories of the Enchiridion and discourses I did have ready at hand when I ejected from that plane. What I had in hand was the understanding that the Stoic, particularly the disciple of Epictetus, who developed this accounting, always keeps separate files in his mind for A, those things which are up to him, and B, those things which are not up to him. Or another way of saying it is, A, those things which are within his power, and B, those things which are beyond his power. Or still another way of saying it, A, those things which are within the grasp of his will, his free will, and B, those things which are beyond it. Among the relatively few things that are up to me within my power, within my will, are my opinions, my aims, my aversions, my own grief, 
my own joy, my moral purpose or will, my attitude toward what is going on, my own good, and my own evil. Please note, all these things, as are all things of real importance to the Stoic, are matters that apply principally to your inner self, where you live. Now, I'm talking like a preacher here for a bit. Please understand that I am not trying to sell anything. It's just the most efficient way to explain it. Stoicism is one of those things that, when described analytically, sounds horrible to some modern people. Mm -hmm. Stoic scholars agree that to describe it effectively, the teacher must become, for the time being at least, a Stoic. So we'll stop there, take a break there. And I think that's what I was pointing to at the beginning there, the short introduction that I made, is that he's reading the Enchiridion, he's reading the discourses of Epictetus, and then when he is landing in that street, in that village, and what happens to him immediately as he lands is, I think if I remember right, they wanted to kill him right there. Or at least he was afraid they were going to kill him right there. And then one of the North Vietnamese soldiers that, that came on the scene stopped them from killing him right there on the spot. Um, I can't remember if it was him or one of the other pilots because I've listened to so many different interviews with so many of these pilots that were captured and put in the Hanoi Hilton. Yeah. I'm, but regardless, I'm, it was terrible yeah. immediately. Mm -hmm. And then... As bad as that was, as soon as they got him to where they were going, he was immediately tortured. Mm -hmm. Extensively tortured for a great length of time. Yeah. That's why I think in the, in the last episode, or maybe it was the, before that even, I kind of chuckled at the fact that he said I was tortured the, you know, 17 times or something. Mm -hmm. It was like, really? You want to, wasn't the whole thing torture? Well, the ability to quantify that right. that way speaks absolute volumes, uh, given what we know about uh, the Hanoi Hilton. Right. Well, and it goes to the point, too, that he can quantify that torture because in his own mind, in his inner self, he has control over that. Mm -hmm. He has control over whether or not he receives what's happening to him as torture or not. Mm -hmm. because this is something Epictetus talks about, Marcus Aurelius talks about it. Others who have read the Stoics, you know, after that, that time they talk about this is you have a choice about how you receive what's happening to you. And that's those, uh, those things outside of yourself that you don't have any power over that he talks about. These are things that are not within your power. They're beyond mm -hmm. your power. You don't have any choice about what happens to you and how it happens and why it happens. But you do have a choice about how you perceive those things. Mm -hmm. And so even in this situation of extreme torture and, and pain, both mentally, physically, and emotionally, he's made a choice already in his own mind. You're not going to break me. You can torture me all you want. But that's just my body. That's, that's, that's the power you have over my body, but you can never have power over my inner self because mm -hmm. that's where I live. Yeah, you can't take that away from me. And I think that's so important. We were talking before we hit record about discipline and developing habits as you get older, especially. And I was mentioning that I know people in their seventies and eighties who are in CrossFit, they power lift, they're in jujitsu and other martial arts, and they're they're going great. Mm -hmm. And as they got involved with different health programs and and changed the way they exercised, 
of course, inevitably, their diets change, their sleep patterns change, they got more serious about their gut health and all that goes along with it. And what they discover is that 70 is not the end of life, 80 is not the end of life, but rather you don't have control over time, which is to say you don't have, time, you don't have choice about getting older. Time mm-hmm. is out of our control. But you do have a choice about what you do with that time or within yeah. that time. And so often I see this even with people in their mid to late 30s where they just accept this is the way I am. This is the way my life is. And I don't, I can't change that. So I just have to learn to live with it mm-hmm. <clears throat> versus myself where I live. I was just talking with my friend, Mike, after jujitsu this morning about this. For me, if I look back on Instagram a year from now at a picture from today and I can say, I'm exactly the same person that I was a year ago. To me, that's horrifying. Mm-hmm. because for me, change is inevitable and it's constant. And it's just a matter of whether you recognize that you're changing or even after the fact, you can look over your shoulder and recognize I've changed maybe for the good, maybe for not. But again, those are things within our power, our will, as he, as Stockdale notes, you have a choice about your attitude. You have a choice about your own good and your own evil. Mm-hmm. That is you are ultimately accountable to yourself for how you not only perceive events, but also then how you interact with those events. Precisely. Yeah. And so 70 or 80 doesn't have to be the end of the road. It's like I said to you, when I was younger and I saw someone who was 48 years old and they were gray haired and they had a wheat belly and maybe they had a limp or they had arthritis in their hands. I just looked at that person and thought, you're old. You're so old. And they were decrepit. Now I'm 48 and I'm not decrepit. And I understand, yeah, 48 is definitely older than 23, obviously. (laughs) And there's different things that I have to do at 48 that I didn't have to do at 23. Like like invest extensively in anti-inflammatory products. (laughs) But nonetheless, 48 isn't the end of the road. Go back and listen to the BJJ debrief that we did where I talk about the tournament and Bill talks about going back to jujitsu. You make the choice for yourself to stop. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you stop changing, though. You are changing, even yep. if it's just the the outward physical appearance that changes. You start, you know, you start balding. You you start getting wrinkly skin. You get crow's feet, varicose veins, all these things. You are changing, and you're none of us are static. This is the point within Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius and the Stoics, which is that everything's growing. And everything's dying, life for a life. So a tree grows, it produces fruit, the fruit falls on the ground and dies and rots, and the seeds go into the earth and there are more trees. Everything is this way. Life gives way to life. And everything is about change. It's just us who make a choice at some time in our life where we say, well, I guess this is just the way I am. Mm -hmm. And I guess I just have to learn to accept this. And some of the most miserable people that I, I meet or know are people that have accepted this kind of status quo. Mm-hmm. Well, and contrary to that, some of the most joyful people you'll meet can be these, uh, some of these veterans who have lost limbs and everything right. else. Because in the course of those things, they have learned to properly discern between those things which are within their power right. and those things which are not. So I have all my limbs, thankfully, but I do suffer from chronic pain. 
Mm-hmm. As sucky as that is, <laughs> it is valuable because it has helped at least a little bit in teaching me to discern the difference between those things. Right. So I'm going to have pain the rest of my life. It's not going to get any better. Well, that sucks. But you know what I can do? Right. I can wrap my knees up and go to jujitsu. I can change my diet. I, there are a number of things despite these other issues that Mm -hmm. can be controlled. When we just give up, we're not just giving up on the things that are outside of our control, right? Worse. And probably the most damaging is that giving up on things which are in our control. Right. Right. Because it does have a a bloom effect Mm -hmm. in that when you stop, when you give up and you quit, then the people around you that you're in relation to are also kind of trapped in that dynamic to a certain extent. It's almost like when you pull the plug out of a drain and it sucks all the water down into it, Mm -hmm. you also get in that habit of sucking everybody kind of into your orbit, so to speak. Yeah. And, I, again, I have friends who, well, they're not really my friends anymore. And they'll say that they feel judged by me. And I'll ask why, because I don't judge them. I have nothing against them. And they'll start listing off all the things that I've done in my life, especially the past three years and the things I've changed in my life the last three years. And I'll say, but I've never once brought these things up to you as a negative. I've never once actually tried to force my opinions on you about what these things you ask. I tell you what they do for me, but I never say you need to do this. You must do this. Mm-hmm. You have to be like me if you want to be happy or healthy or anything. I'm just saying this is how I've changed this, how I'm different now, not different from you, not changed in a better way than you morally speaking, but rather this is just how I've changed and I'm different. Yeah. You feeling judged by me. That's not in my power. Like that's in your power. Mm-hmm. You've made that decision based on your perception, but I'm not saying or doing anything to my knowledge and correct me if I'm wrong to give you that impression or to say to you, I think I'm better than you now or whatever the reason might be. So we do this all the time where the person sitting across from us at the table or standing next to us in the line or whatever it might be, they become a mirror to us. Exactly. Yep. And really what we're talking about is we're judging ourselves in the other person reflected back at us. Yeah. Well, stoicism is a philosophy that is in line with natural law. Yeah, right. This effect that you're talking about, you know the term for it, it's mirror of the law. Yeah. So what happens is I'm sitting across from a, a buddy of mine from the school here and dude is really, really, really good at Hebrew, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that makes me feel kind of crappy because I'm not. I have a choice when in those moments I feel that mirror of the law because he didn't get there out of the blue. Mm -hmm. It wasn't some magical privilege or anything that just gifted this knowledge to him. No, he learned it through hard work, through study. So I have a choice in those moments, and this applies to everything. I can either say, well, He's from this place. He had these kind of parents. And here's all the reasons why it's just easier for him. Right, right. Or I can say, well, 
okay, yeah, he started studying it a number of years before I did, but look how far he's gotten with continued study. I ought also apply myself in that way. Actually, this is a good point too, and I don't want to get too far afield before we get back to Stockdale, but it's what we do with rabbit trails. So (laughs) this is the thing too, though, of we recognize in the other, he's put in the hard work, he's done what's necessary to get to this point to achieve these things. And yeah, maybe he has some natural affinity for languages, for example, Mm -hmm. but he still has to put the work in. Exactly. And we have this tendency, again, to shift responsibility Mm -hmm. and to say, okay, well, he does that. And like you said, we make up these justifications, but really what it is at the end of the day is we don't want to take a step back and prioritize our own life and to say, these are my priorities and these are not. So maybe learning a language like Hebrew or Greek or ancient Latin or something, it's not a priority for you. Yeah. But because he's so good at it you, and you feel that, that judgment by being around him and you say to yourself, I got I to gotta get better at this. But if it's not a priority for you, it's not going to be too long before you go back into those old habits where you're not practicing and you're not studying and you're not going through what's necessary to get better at these languages. Mm-hmm. Instead, you're back at your, you're playing video games or you're at the gym or whatever it may be. You're just not committed because you haven't taken that step back to reflect and ask, what are my priorities? What, what are the things that are the top three priorities in my life? Write them down even if you have to and say, okay, priority number one is my family, for example. Priority number two is serving my congregation as a pastor. Priority number three is training and teaching at the gym. Those are my three priorities. Those are my only three priorities. Therefore, everything has to fall under one of those three. Otherwise, it's not a priority, mm-hmm. at least not top three. So I'll say yeah. to people, that's not a priority, but I will get to it after all of these other things in my schedule have been checked off. Mm-hmm. So today, you should probably ask somebody else to do it for you. But if you can wait until Sunday, 100%, I'll get this to you. But I can't get it to you before Sunday because it's not a priority. And what's interesting is that I found, especially when I first started doing this, instead of saying, well, I don't have time, which is a lie and an excuse, but this is what we do. I started saying it's not a priority. The people I said it to actually thought that I was being negative and judgmental by saying, I, it's not a priority. They heard, I don't care about you <laughs> or I don't think you're important enough to worry about this thing. Yeah. So I've had conversations where I've, where I've had to explain. No, when I say it's not a priority, I'm actually explaining to you, I would love to do this for you, but it's number seven on my list. Mm-hmm. Being honest with you so that you call me on Friday and say, hey, did you get that thing done? And I say, no, maybe by Sunday, you don't feel like I'm blowing you off or treating it like it's unimportant. Yeah. To me, it actually isn't that important because it's not a priority. But that's not a judgment on you or our friendship or our work relationship. I'm simply being honest and saying, listen, if it's important to you, it's important to me, but it's not a priority. Mm-hmm. And I think too often, this is what I hear is people making up the excuse, well, life, you know, life happened and I just couldn't get to it. Or, well, the kids are crazy or, you know, work was nuts and I just, it, it's, I promise I'll get to it by next. No, just be honest. It's mm-hmm. not a priority. You didn't, you know, you didn't manage your time and you didn't schedule for it because it's not a priority. And if you would have just said at the, at the front end of things, it's not a priority, but if you need it by Sunday, I'll be happy to do it. You would have eliminated a lot of stress for yourself, a lot of anxiety, a lot of tension in the work relationship or the personal relationship. And it would have been fine. Mm -hmm. But again, it's just the way that we perceive things and then how we articulate and express that with words that we end up betraying ourselves so much. 
That's a good point. So back to Stockdale then. For instance, he says, to give you a better feel for why your own good and your own evil are on the list, I want to quote Alexander Solzhenitsyn from his book, Gulag Archipelago. When he talks about that point in prison, when he gets his act together, realizes his residual powers, and starts what I know as ascending, riding the updrafts of occasional euphoria as you realize you are getting to know yourself and the world for the first time. Quote, it was only when I lay there on the rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not between states, nor between social classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart, through all human hearts. And that is why I turn back to the years of my imprisonment and say, sometimes to the astonishment of those about me, bless you, prison, for having been part of my life. I understand that, Stockdale writes. He learned, as I and many others have learned, that good and evil are not just abstractions that you kick around and give lectures about and attribute to this person and that. The only good or evil that mean anything are right in your own heart, within your will, within your power, where it's up to you. What the Stoics say is, quote, you take care of that and you'll have your hands full. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's awesome. But like we said, true. Take care of that and you'll have your hands full. Meaning, focus on what's good, focus on what's evil, right there in your own heart, within your own will, within your own power, where it's up to you. Mm -hmm. Which, as we've talked about in the past, is kind of our social disease right now, is to not look at our own heart, but rather to project that outward onto others and say, again, that mirror that's, that's showing us our true selves in, their, in our other person we just seek to eliminate the other person. Yep. Yep. And it gets more violent right. as time goes on. Well, it has to because what am I going to do? Rip out my own heart? Precisely. I can't do that. There's nobody I love more than me. Mm-hmm. I can't possibly be the problem. It's like we were talking about, and I'll give the, the PG-13 version. If you run into a jerk <laughs> in the morning, he's a jerk. Mm-hmm. If you run into jerks all day, you're the jerk. Because yep. what's the common thread in every one of those interactions? It's you, my friend. Mm-hmm. So take a step back and recognize, as, as Solzhenitsyn points out, and he, again, he gets this from the Stoics, th- there's only one. In your life, there's only one person that you have control over in distinguishing good from evil and making the choice to be a morally good person versus a morally bad person, and that's yourself. Mm-hmm. That's it. Martin Luther has a quote that's shockingly similar to that, even though he would have never read Epictetus. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, love your neighbor and you'll be so busy doing that that you'll have, you will not, excuse me, have time for anything else. You know, you will have your hands full. Right. And this is the same point here. Right. When, the the job of policing ourselves, if you will, mm-hmm. will take up all the time we have. Mm-hmm. If you are actually, and and this is really 
and this is really the difference between folks who are seeking to improve themselves, seeking to live honorably, and those who are not, those who are forced to what we call today virtue signal. Right. And that's really the only difference. Well, On the one hand, people have their hands full doing the good, seeking after that good, right. whereas the others pass by it. And well, so they have to seek. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say this goes to Epictetus's point. Change your own heart and then you'll change the world. Mm-hmm. Is what we have, mm-hmm. and every generation suffers from this going back to Epictetus's day, is we think, well, I've got to change the world to make it a better world for myself and my children, for example, right? Yeah. Versus, well, if you want to make the world better for your children, you need to change your own heart first. Because to your point, how can I serve my neighbor, for example? How can I help my neighbor improve and live a good life if I don't actually know what is good? Yeah. I don't know what my motivations are. What is my intent? What are my motivations for helping my neighbor? Are they selfish? Am I just doing it to get something from my neighbor? I'm manipulating my neighbor. Or do I generally want to help my neighbor and seek my neighbor's good? Mm-hmm. And what are my children going to see then? And what are they going to hear when I'm discussing it with my wife behind closed doors, for example, when they find out that I'm talking to my wife one way selfishly about how I'm going to help my neighbor so I can get something from him versus then I go and do it and they see, oh, he's a hypocrite. Dad's a hypocrite. He's two-faced. Versus I'm telling my wife, I'm going to go help my neighbor, um, clean up his yard. Why? Well, because he's got a lot to do and there's, he's alone and he doesn't have anybody to help him. And if I was in that situation, I'd want somebody to come and help me too. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go help him. And then he says, hey, let me, give you, let me give you 50 bucks for helping me out. Nope, I didn't come over here to get 50 bucks to help you out. I came over here because I saw that you needed help. That's it. Mm-hmm. Then your kids see that and recognize, okay, that was genuine. That was real. Like that yeah. was legit. But I have to first make the choice in my own t- for myself whether or not I'm going to do that and what my motives are. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I can act on those things. But this is, again, that kind of the will and the, the value judgment, the moral judgment that you're making that you would then act on and pursue that desire, for example, which is a good desire to help your neighbor, to help your neighbor pick up his yard, for example, versus a bad desire, which is to go over there and help my neighbor pick up his yard because I'm basically going to tell him, hey, man, I, I just gave my whole afternoon to help you. And you know what? I could really use 50 bucks for gas for the car. Do you think you could swing me 50 bucks for helping you? Like to me, yeah. and we've all had those interactions with people where we realized, oh, this is a transaction. Like, I didn't realize we were doing a business deal. I thought you were, you were trying to help me. And those are some of the, for me anyways, those are some of the worst feelings when you realize that this person actually is not genuine at all. They were just manipulating you and using you for their own ends. Mm-hmm. So take care of that. Take care of your own heart. Take care of the only good or evil that mean anything, which is in your own heart, within your will, within your power, where it's up to you, and you'll have your hands full all the time. Yep. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. (laughs) So back to Stockdale then. What is not up to you? What is beyond your power? Not subject to your will in the last instance. For starters, let's take your station in life. As I glide down toward that little town on my short parachute ride, I'm just about to learn how negligible is my control over my station in life. It's not at all up to me. 
Of course, I'm going right now from being the wing commander in charge of a thousand people, pilots, crewmen, maintenance men, responsible for nearly a hundred airplanes and beneficiary of goodness knows all sorts of symbolic status and goodwill to being an object of contempt. Criminal, I'll be known as. But that's not half the revelation. That is the realization of your own fragility. That you can be reduced by the natural elements or men to a helpless, sobbing wreck. Unable to control even your own bowels in a matter of minutes. Mm -hmm. More than that even, you're going to face fragilities you never before let yourself believe could be true. Like after mere minutes in a flurry of action while being knocked down and then sat up to be bound with tourniquet-tight ropes. With care by a professional, hands cuffed behind jackknife forward, head pushed down between your ankles, held secure in lugs, attached to a heavy iron bar, that with the onrush of anxiety, knowing your upper body blood circulation has been stopped, and feeling the ever-growing pain and the ever-closing in of claustrophobia as the man standing on your back gives, you, gives your head one last shove down with his heels and you start to gasp and vomit that you can be made to blurt out answers, probably correct answers, to question about anything they know you know. I'm not going to pull you through that explanation again. I'll just call it taking the ropes. No station in life can be changed from that of a dignified and competent gentleman of culture to that of a panic-stricken, sobbing, self-loathing wreck. Maybe a permanent wreck if you have no will in less than an hour. So what? So after you work a lifetime to get yourself all set up and then delude yourself into thinking that you have some kind of ownership claim on your station in life, you are riding for a fall. You are asking for disappointment. To avoid that, stop kidding yourself. Just do the best you can on a common sense basis to make your station in life what you want it to be. That you treat your station in life with indifference. Not with contempt. Only with indifference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because even your station in life then is out of your control oh yeah oh yeah that how often do you have to click on the news or you know well back in the day get a newspaper and find out that billionaire so-and-so just died in a plane crash all his money now goes to people who didn't work for it as right. he did right and on and on and on that kind of stuff goes um you don't have control over the station in life no you are currently in Mm -mm. it can be affected of course Mm -hmm. work and education and these various things however none of it's permanent no none of it's permanent and none of it's owed to anyone right you know this is another way that we really do ourselves a disservice by self-delusion Again, I go back to the example of family is assuming that your wife and kids, for example, in, in my case, that they're permanent somehow. And because they, you believe they're permanent or you deluded yourself into thinking this is permanent, you actually then take them for granted. You, you begin to behave as if you're entitled to them. Mm-hmm. And you then begin to abuse them and use them for purposes and goals that they're not meant to be used for. Yeah. And, and like I was saying about my neighbor and helping clean up my neighbor's yard, same thing with my wife and kids. All of a sudden, instead of seeing them as, as gifts that I don't deserve, for example, and that they're not permanent, and therefore gratitude every day, being humbled every day by the fact that they're in my life and that I get to be a part of their life, that 
the most important, the most expensive commodity that I have is time. No, I was just saying to somebody the other day that a friend of mine, would you let someone come up to you and reach in your pocket and take money out of your pocket? Of course not. Would you let someone walk into your house and take your daughter away? Well, of course not. <clears throat> and yet neither one of those is permanent. Mm-hmm. And yet you freely allow people to take your time and waste it essentially, which is literally time is the most valuable resource that you have. Mm-hmm. It is the absolute because it is the most permanent thing, time. And yet we waste it excessively by pursuing relationships and jobs and diets and whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. We just throw it away as if, like I was saying in relation to my family, as if these things are permanent, as if time itself is something that I just have an excess and I can just tap into it whenever I need more of it. Mm-hmm. And the answer is you don't. No, memento more. It doesn't more. matter if you're a, a, a Saudi oil sheik or a homeless man living in the park in San Francisco. It, it doesn't matter because mm-hmm. whatever your station in life, time will come for you and it will take everything from you in the end. Mm. Yep. Yep. So either you take that as a kind of super bummer statement, or you recognize that you have today and you have an opportunity today to live with gratitude, to be humbled by the day itself, to look around yourself, to stare hard at things and appreciate what you have. And if you don't, if you don't see value in yourself or what you have, then change, Mm -hmm. change it. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a struggle. I was talking with my friend Mike again about switching jobs. No one wants to switch jobs. No matter how miserable you are in a job, the thought of switching jobs and getting trained in and maybe being unemployed for a certain amount of time or taking a pay cut or whatever it might be, there's nothing fun about that. Mm, But uh, as Jordan Peterson says, if you're miserable in your job today, in five years, you're not going to be less miserable. You're going to be more miserable. So you need to prioritize today and execute on that and say, I can't, I can't make this a priority anymore. I've got to go find a different job mm-hmm. because I can't be here in five years and be more miserable than I am today. Like what, what is that then? What's the point of that? Because you can't get that time back. You can't get those five years back. So what are you going to do with that time? And so that's, that's always the challenge that I, that I put to myself even of, I just recently resigned from a job because I just, it wasn't a priority anymore. And mm-hmm. I just recognized that there's no amount of money that's enough money. No matter how much money I'm paid, there's never going to be enough money regardless. I, I, I have a friend who's a billionaire. He's always making more money. It's like, you're yeah. a billionaire. You don't need more money. But that's the game. And so if you have a billion, you want two billion. If you have a hundred, you want 200. So if that's the whole purpose of the grind, the daily grind is to make that extra hundred bucks. Well, guess what? When you get 200, you're going to want 400. And when you get four, you're going to want eight. So how much is enough? How much money is enough to satisfy you? How much love is enough love to satisfy you? How, what do you need to be satisfied? Have you even asked yourself the question? Yeah. Yeah. And well, and this, this point right here, our insatiability is is where what we've been talking about runs into nihilism. Which, nihilism or fatalism, for sure. I uh, well, I either uh, this, again. This is just the way I am. Much and of a difference. <laughs> 
Whereas nihilism is, well, nothing matters. So you know, this job or another job, what's it matter? This relationship, um, that relationship, what's it matter? True. Uh, but where the rubber meets the road in both fatalism and nihilism is that endless pursuit, that endless insatiability, right. uh, whether it's for those relationships or for money or, or you know, name it. Um, well, to stop I, you real quick then, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't even thought about this before until you just phrase it that way. That's Epicureanism. At base, oh, shoot. Yeah, it is. Right. It, this is the thing that Marcus talks about that he condemns is the cynics and the Epicureans. Why? Because the Epicureans are like, well, what's the purpose of life? Well, it's to satisfy your desires. Why? Because you're going to die tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You might as well enjoy yourself today because what's the point? Yeah. Other than to just get what you can, you know, satisfy your desires and have a good time. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Live fast, die young, and live a beautiful corpse. Yeah. 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 But I think that's all there is. Right. Uh, when you fall into the current uh, philosophical climate, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, the only practical way you can live these things out is uh, you know, as you said, nihilism or fatalism. Yeah. Both of which are going to leave you dead and with nothing. Right. And in, unsatisfied. Right. I read an article a few days ago. One of those things that you go to check your email and there, you know, there's those, they're usually just trash articles that pop up, you know, <laughs> physicians hate, you know, this guy cause he, you know, puts mayonnaise on his face and has no wrinkles or whatever it is. <laughs> but right. it was, it was a very, very brief, uh, anecdotal article written by a lady who used to clean houses, you know? And her job was cleaning houses for very, very, very wealthy people. And the observation she makes in this article is that these people are miserable. Mm. How does she know this? Because in the course of her cleaning, she finds all kinds of prescription medications, booze, pornography, just name the vice. Mm-hmm compared to what she was used to, which was uh, at least compared to these very wealthy people, poverty. Mm -hmm. And the conclusion she came to, to not make this a huge long story, but the conclusion she came to after spending a number of years cleaning all these rich people's houses is that she does not want that lifestyle. Why? Because it's miserable. She mm -hmm. saw how it affected her clients who could do nothing except pursue more money, more mm -hmm. pleasure, more uh, these various vices. And she saw uh, not just in dealing with these clients directly, but also in cleaning their homes, how they then lived. Hmm. And the results were enough to make her say, you know, I don't want that. I would right. prefer to live simply to mm -hmm. paraphrase her conclusion. Hmm. That, well, that's why Marcus really says that true freedom lies in simplicity. Yeah, very much so. Well, and this was an emperor. 
This was an emperor who refused to right. walk around the palace in mm -hmm. the most expensive silks and all this right. stuff, preferring instead, uh, oh gosh, how's he put it? The, um, uh, the, the coarse, uh, oh gosh, the coarse uh, clothing of a philosopher or something yes. like that. Yep. In other words, simple clothing. Yeah. And Which, by the way, <clears throat> everyone around him mocked him for that. Mm -hmm. It wasn't. Oh, as yeah. a, people were admiring him saying, we need to imitate the emperor. No. His nickname was the pedagogue, the teacher. And that was yeah. a derogatory term. They said, oh, great. Here comes Marcus to teach us more stoic philosophy again. Mm -hmm. Which is yeah. why Marcus says, most people don't actually care about being morally good. No. And he he's absolutely. Go ahead. I was going to say he knows it firsthand because the people that are around him at court, his trusted friends and advisors are saying to him, really another lecture? Really? Mm -hmm. Can't you just let loose one time? Yep. Well, and it's interesting. Um, Stockdale has to say the same with, uh, it was a um, where we, uh, oh, here it is. Quote, now I'm talking like a preacher here for a bit. Right. And then he has to, you know, kind of back that up and say, okay, just understand why, because we are naturally turned off by that. Right. Why? Because we, if given the opportunity, we all want to hit cruise control, mm -hmm. sit back and Netflix and chill. Right. If I am using that. Well, that's what I said earlier about the mirror of the law. Mm -hmm. that's what it is it's when you show up and you start talking philosophy even if you're not trying to lecture someone that's you'll get hey hey you know what i don't need a lecture or yep. oh great you're not going to preach to me you're going to try and give me some of that old time religion mm -hmm. and basically it's exactly that is i don't need you to show me that i'm not like you <laughs> mm -hmm. and i don't i especially don't need you to show me that i'm not morally good or that i just don't care about it yep and all, yep. you know, I don't care to be reminded that I'm selfish, self-centered, petty, juvenile, morally evil most of the time because my motives are selfish and so forth and so on. Yeah. You know, jumping ahead just a little bit to wrap up with this then. Yeah. To a stoic Stockdale says, bad luck is your fault. You have become addicted to externals, which is what we've been talking about this whole conversation. Stuff that's Ouch. outside of our control. So bad luck's your fault because you've been addicted, become addicted to externals. Epictetus says, what are tragedies but the portrayal in tragic verse of the suffering of men who have admired things external? Now you can say, ouch, because <laughs> that really hurts. Uh, it, and it should. Uh, you know, the Homer wrote an entire, uh, two entire epics based on this very thing, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Yeah. How did the Trojan War start? Well, they had a little bit of a disagreement, and then there was some negotiations. And then, mm -hmm. But it all came right. down to this guy wants this chick. Exactly, yeah. And the way it always you know, starts. Oh, well. <laughs> Ask my wife, whenever watching a movie or a TV show, whenever the protagonist encounters a woman, what do I yell? Kill her. Kill her now. <laughs> because I know in the first act we meet her, and by the third act, She's going to be the reason somehow or another that this dude goes to jail, gets assassinated, or simply falls. Like, mm -hmm. it's, it's a trope. Well, it, it's a trope because it's, it's true, true right? regardless of time, place, or even right. gender. Right. Females, this applies to you too. Right. Um, and, and that's the reason. Externals. 
Well, tropes, there is a misunderstanding nowadays about what tropes are and how they function. Mm -hmm. Briefly stated, tropes are just literary devices. Right. That express basically a universal truth. Yeah, exactly. That's why when we watch the show or the movie or we read the book or whatever, we immediately recognize, oh, this is not going to go well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, it's it's the cliche uh, from the horror movies. We should split up and right. everyone in the audience groans because you know how that's going to work. Right, which is why so Cabin in the Woods is a superior horror movie. Everyone needs to go. <laughs> um, but it, we recognize these things. And so the point that Stockdale is making here uh, by quoting Epictetus mm-hmm. is that this addiction to externals, right. the reason this resonates with us, the reason you, you hear that quote and you, you got to kind of cringe a little bit because you know, and I know in my own life, right. I've done the same thing right, and more than once. Oh yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> because I this, wish I was addicted to an external single. Well, yeah. It, it's plural for a reason. Right. But we don't want to address that. Well, because of what it says, what's a tragedy? It's actually the suffering of men who have admired things that are external. It's you pursue a desire and that desire is destructive. It's tragic actually, because you pursued it before and you know what's going to happen, but you do it anyways. And then when it happens, what do you say? How could this have happened to me? Why would you ever do this to me? God, why have you let this happen to me? No. (laughs) You've done this to yourself. Mm-hmm. that's the tragedy of being human <laughs> is we do the same things over and over again. And that's the insanity plea. I, I expected a different yeah. result. I swear it was going to be different this time. Oh, did I ever send you that YouTube clip? Uh, the definition of insanity. Right. Um, yeah. I'll have to send that to you once we're, once we're off air. Um, just if, if you're curious about it, uh, do a quick YouTube search for, Far cry for the definition of insanity. Nice. You'll see a little clip and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously a very over-dramatized uh, take on this, this very thing. Mm-hmm. But the truth of the matter is that the definition of insanity is to do the exact same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. Right. None of us want to admit that this is just kind of what we do in our lives. Right. And that sucks. It's not fun to admit. So long as we never recognize for ourselves that we're repeating the same cycle over and over again. Mm -hmm. Which goes to the point about deferring responsibility onto others, blaming God, blaming our neighbor, blaming our boss, the job, the institution, the organization, the ideology, whatever. Exactly. Rather than say, no, this is all because of a consequence of your decisions, your actions, your pursuing desires that are not healthy for you, that are mm-hmm. not helpful to you. Not yeah. you, The people you surround yourself with, the job you've gotten yourself into, the ideologies that you've assumed, they're consequences of those choices. But as we've oh. been talking about, and Stockdale's been talking about, all of that resides in you and what you can actually control, which is whether mm-hmm. the good or pursue the bad. Yeah, But it's within you to do those things. And even to recognize I'm addicted to this thing, this external thing that's outside of my control. And as a consequence, yeah, there's going to be negative side effects. There's going to be negative fruit. Mm -hmm. 
And so that's a good place to wrap it up probably. Yeah, it is. Uh, Well, he he gets into that next paragraph, which I think will be at least an episode. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Exactly. So Uh, it's good stuff though. It's fantastic stuff, but Mm -hmm. uh, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you as always for your time and your attention. I hope you uh, enjoy the podcast. If you do, please recommend it to others. Send a link, tag people on Instagram or on Facebook or whatever so that they can get involved in this conversation too. And you can have the conversation after you hit stop on this and you can carry it out, you know, carry on the conversation in your own life. Mm-hmm. And as always, if there's anything you'd like us to read, we'd love to hear from you and get feedback. And you can contact me directly through Instagram, through uh, DM and uh, contact Bill. I don't know. Bill's a Luddite, so I don't know if you can actually contact Bill. Well, I, yeah, between my wife and my podcast, I I have been getting trained in the ways of social media. So let's see, we are, we are on Twitter. We are on parlor. We are on Twitch and Facebook. Awesome. And we have an email address too. So I, uh, I mean, that's progress. That's for There we go. We're moving, we're moving in the right direction. You know, yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, folks. We'll see you next week for a brand new episode. Thank you again. Thank you. Love you. Peace.